Welcome to College Sports Conversation, celebrating 50 years of Title IX. I'm Bonnie Bernstein, and this is our very first episode of this new series. And our first guest is a true historian of Title IX, and one of the few that I can really think of, quite frankly, who can boast being involved in college athletics from the very time she stepped foot on a college campus to play college basketball, who, oh, by the way, has such incredible credentials and street cred in our industry. Chris Plonsky, thank you so much for joining us. 35 years now uh, at the University of Texas. Thank you, Bonnie. It's, a, it's an honor to be with you. We are thrilled to have you here, Chris. Now, the interesting thing is you went to play basketball at Kent State. You were a journalism major. So I'm wondering if you were to step outside your body Put your journalism hat on, and you're going to write Chris Plonsky's bio. What would be in that first paragraph? Chris Plonsky is so lucky uh, to be a post-Title IX baby. Um, I, you know, again, when the law passed, I distinctly remember talking with five friends in a little suburb of Akron, Ohio. Uh, was born in Pennsylvania, Western PA, but my dad moved us to Northeast Ohio um, in the mid-60s. And uh, I found a group of friends where we were all active. And when the law passed, um, we all had friends. Our guys in our you know, ninth grade class were all aspiring to get college scholarships, especially this in actually basketball. on your radar in high school? Because sure. I think about, I, I, if I'm being completely honest, Title IX wasn't on my radar until after I graduated from college. You were in high school at the time. Yeah, and, and we talked about it because, again, our, our, the guys were our buddies. They let us compete in basketball, and, you know, we'd pick up games on the courts or playing touch football in the streets. And, and we knew they were aspiring to get college scholarships. They were talking about it freely, as were their coaches. And so we just said, I wonder if there'll ever be women's athletic scholarships the same way the guys can. Um, we were all sports fans, period. So by the time I enrolled at Kent State in 1975, it was a local university. Um, I, I went there really as a student. Um, I'm one of five girls, so we were going to college. Um, we also were paying our own way, as my mom and dad reminded us. So you know, I worked to go to college. But I wanted to keep competing, and I walked on at Kent in a, in a very, you know, nascent AIW era, but I still love the game. Um, got into journalism school a year later, and then, again, always thought I could have a career as a sports writer. That was my dream. I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated because I used to race my dad to the mailbox to get it before he did. Um, we are kindred spirits. There we go. <laughs> so, um, again, I never knew that there was this publicity office for college athletics until my coach, who was also a professor, also the women's AD, her name was Judy Devine. Um, if we have Donna Lopiano at Texas, the Judy Devine of Kent State, she was our leader. And she said, you're in journalism school. She goes, I need you to go visit the sports info office. I said, what is that? She said, go up to this building. We need to begin keeping records on our women's athletics program at Kent. We had, I think, eight sports. And she said, this is what you are going to do professionally someday, you know, right. She goes, you can do this in that office. They need somebody who understands sports, statistics, history, records. Who knew? That was how I became 
involved in college athletics. It, I played. I wasn't a very good player in college, trust me. I was just, I tell myself I'm the slowest guard in the MAC, but I love that sports information experience and my campus newspaper experience. And when I graduated, I just stayed with it. I got so lucky. There are student athletes who will watch this interview knowing what the landscape currently looks like for women, in large part due to the progress that Title IX has yielded. Describe for me the facilities the resources, the scholarship situation in the mid-70s, shortly after Title IX at Kent State. I, I just want you to provide that perspective. Uh, bought our own shoes, had very um, rudimentary uniforms, uh, had to do our own laundry for practice and everything else. Do your own laundry. Oh, what a, what a concept. I will tell you, they were fun days. You didn't even pay attention to what you didn't have because you were just so happy to be on a team and to have teammates and to play and to travel. We stayed four to a hotel room. Uh, don't even remember how we ate. We might have a few dollars to run into a 7-Eleven. Um, on the scholarship front, we didn't have them my first year, 75, 76, but by 76, 77, I remember she walked in and said, Title IX means that we're going to get a little bit of funding. And she gave this very paltry amount of money that was going to be dedicated to women's basketball scholarships. She said, I think we ought to vote as a team who gets them. And we all voted the seniors should get the maybe $200 in scholarships. I'm glad that I was aware of it and participated uh, because behind the scenes, being on that Sports Info staff and working on the school paper, I got to really know the underbelly and the business side of athletics and, and got to understand it. So kind of following Title IX throughout my career was embedded from those days at Kent State. You really are, I think, for purposes of this series and reality, kind of a de facto historian when it comes to Title IX. And when you arrived here to take the sports info job at Texas, so it's early 80s, the women's programs are starting to gain momentum. There's championships in volleyball and track and field and swimming and diving. When you thought about your role as a sports information director at the time, was the seed planted in your own head that there's a larger purpose here beyond regurgitating, doing the game recaps and providing the stats? I did, and, and I was very fortunate that I had had a little experience on a macro level at another great school in Iowa State, you know, still AIW era. When I went to Iowa State in the fall of 79, their signature sports of success then were cross country and track and field. Think about the Drake relays. Sure. And Iowa State's women had won four straight AIW cross country titles. Now, cross country might seem like a in the fall compared to football and other sports, but they were so good, so good. And those women then ran track. So two and a half years at Iowa State and I saw the opportunity at Texas, I interviewed for it. I came down here and was so uh, taken by where they were at the time. Again, Donna Lopiano had been the AD now for seven years. Um, we were still in the AIW last year, but they were already averaging 2,500 in women's basketball. And our teams were really good. They had won an AIW volleyball title in that fall of 81. Our track team was ranked number one in the AIW, and Coach Conrad's team in women's basketball 
was on a winning streak that would end up uh, facing with Rutgers in the last AIW final in the Palestra that Rutgers beat us. And that I think we had won maybe 29 straight games going into there. I just knew that there were, they were building something special here. And the empowerment of women in the department, female boss, Lopiano, female coaches, not all female coaches, but our business officer was a, was a female. She was in charge of our budget. Event manager, a female. Full-time fundraiser, female. Full-time trainer, female. Academic coordinator chief, female. So our women athletes were walking around looking at decision makers and people empowered to make decisions, leaders, in the very people they interfaced in every day. That was not lost on me for one minute. Why do you think that Texas was at the forefront of the Title IX movement with people like Donna Lopiano, with people like Jody Conrad, when you had big names at this university, predominantly Daryl Royal, the head football coach, who was adamantly opposed with the fear that progress in women's athletics would take away funding, resources, visibility, of his program. Well, when you peel back uh, the history of Daryl's reaction, because Daryl not only was the football coach here, he was the men's athletics director too. Daryl's responsibility, well stated, was to make sure that those teams and men's athletics were successful. And remember, the no finance mandate or no advisement, Daryl ended up being a unbelievable supporter of women in sports. But his question was, how, are, how is it going to be funded? And he was right. You don't rob Peter to pay Paul. That's interesting. So you said you felt like he was a proponent and it was just the finances that were his concern? When, when I got here, there's no question. Now, DeLos Dodds, by that time in 82, had been hired as men's AD, but he had the same job as Daryl, just not coaching football. He was the men's athletics director for nine men's sports. And again, DeLos had no negative about women's athletics getting the opportunity, but the financing had to be supported by the institution, and, and it was. Yeah. Now, it didn't last forever because the institution finally went, it's time for you all to get together and self-sustain for everything. That took a while. In fact, 2001-02 was probably the last budget year that any uh, uh, subsidization from the university came to support women's athletics. But by then we were full grown and ready to go. But in the early years, again, I think it was just a reaction of surprise. Again, no one ever really examined the 37 words as we know now. Does it apply to sports on college campuses? And when the answer was yes, no one was ready. Um, there were arguments against it, as we know, a tower amendment was proposed, but that was defeated thanks to Birch Bayh and Patsy Mink and many people who were empowered in Washington, D.C. And the which Tower is Amendment was really meant to pull football out of the Title IX conversation. So that's something that was going on back then and still continues to be a part of the conversation. Of course. And again, you can imagine what that would have done back then because there were no limits on scholarships in football. So there could have been 200 men on football at any given time. And think about if there was no equivalent to that and that was exempted, that would have meant that the institution would not have to step up to the same level. So there would have been purportedly 
at least 200 women that wouldn't have had access to higher ed. And that's the huge irony about Title IX to me. It was never about sports. It was never even contemplated when it was written. But applied and interpreted later, um, sports were included. But what it was really about in those early years were opportunity and access to higher ed. And if you walked in a classroom here or at Maryland in 1970s or early 80s, you might have seen a handful of women in a science or engineering or math class let alone people of color, men and women. Title IX blasted through that cap and just said, people need to have access and do what they're capable of doing. And that's the essence of the law that needs to live. It is about equity and opportunity. By virtue of simply being the student athlete, what we know is you organically develop all of these skill sets and characteristics that tee you up for success in life. When you reflect back on your personal experience, what would you say is the most relevant characteristic that you gleaned from your time on the fields of play to helping ensure your professional success? In, in this uh, last three years of social unrest, a pandemic, um, disruption of economics, job, workplace, you know, working remote, working in person, just the, the issue of health and how to maintain your health. I've really talked to so many of our student athletes who are current and then formers who have been able to grind through that difficulty and they hearken back to their dealing with adversity. As a, as a student, as an athlete, or as a teammate. Think about the things that they had to, fall, they fell in their behind and had to get themselves up and dust off and not only get themselves moving, but maybe get a group of people going. So it's that resilience, toughness, expectation that not everything's gonna be linear <laughs> and success is not linear as we know. Um, I also think that the lessons of learning about diversity and tolerance, like not everybody is like you, the way they think, the way they look, but when you have a common goal, you put everything aside and you all find what your role is to work toward a common good. In our society right now, that's the lesson that we need to see more and be reflective so that there's not as much trigger points and violence, like you know, how can we get to a point where things aren't explosive. Teams learn how to not let things reach explosion points. And it's because of great leadership from coaches, but coaches will tell you, our best teams are the teams that govern themselves, where the captains or the leaders on the team control the locker room. I don't need to be the only voice of standard and character and showing up on time and doing your best. When, when great leaders are on teams, great things happen. Well, I think we're in an interesting time, too, more than ever. I feel like this generation of athletes understands the power of the platform, understands that they are inherently leaders, and, and we're seeing them use their voices in the social justice space, in the women's equality space. Where do you see that most with your student athletes, and, and how is that really on display, maybe in a way that 
we hadn't seen in past generations? You know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting question here because the context here is um, because of those early years, there was this expectation of equity and equal treatment. And that, that is passed on through generations. I mean, our alumni, our former letter winners in both men and women's sports are tight. They have great respect for this place. Um, they, they know what they put on the line in order to go to school and compete here. Today's students, I think, still feel that. You know, they can walk around this beautiful Hall of Fame and see it. Is there a different expectation, you think? I think so. <laughs> But I also agree with your assessment that in today's environment, what I find refreshing is our students come in and, and we meet them where they are. Um, it isn't like we have to reset a standard. Um, they, they expect us to learn about dealing with them. This is the way I am, I have a voice. Again, when they get in that team environment, the coach is in charge and there's gonna be a playbook and there's gonna be a standard and there's gonna be a group of rules, but aesthetically, when you are representing our athletics department and you are a student on this campus, there's a certain amount of, uh, when you're on your own for the first time, um, you're a freshman or a newcomer to Texas, you get a feel for what it means to be somebody that people know who you are. In terms of the power of the student athlete voice, are you seeing a shift there? I, we've been seeing a shift. And again, I think it's the environment that they're coming from too. Um, How does that manifest itself in the student-athlete-coach relationship? They, they come in now with an expectation that this is what you're gonna deliver. So that has helped the confidence and the trust in the voices. I also think there's just this natural um, result of technology. They know more. They communicate so differently than we did. Um, and it's instantaneous. Um, they're never, I mean, they don't use their phones. They, they live in them, as we say. Um, but that is so different than when we were waiting on news or waiting on communication, even as staff members back in that day. So I think that's the challenge for, for coaches is to how to get them to put those devices down and deal with each other one-on-one -on -one because that still is necessary in order to build a team so I really like what I see from coaches who, you know, have their, their student athletes engaging in ways that are not technological, that are active. It reminds me of the old days, the throwback days of, this is how we used to see teams get built and how to communicate and how to get better. It's really encouraging that we have a more open approach to mental health. I feel like there are certain areas of mental health that are very specific to our female athletes when it comes to body image, when it comes to the engagement that sometimes uh, they're subjected to on social by virtue of what they're wearing. The fact of the matter is you're not your uniform for track and field, for swimming, for volleyball, for gymnastics. I, there's, there's not a lot of clothing going on. <laughs> um, and you open yourself up to commentary on social, which can be wonderful. Um, but there's also a darker side to that. Um, with NIL, the greater pressures, which goes across both men's and women's athletics. But when you're talking about tackling the mental health discussion specific to female athletes, what does that look like these days? I, again, I, 
I have to give credit to this place and our ability back in the, again, the early era of being able to stay so close and watchful on these, this group of women athletes. So I will tell you bluntly, um, we knew we had some eating disorders among some of the student athlete population. Um, Truda Lopiano, um, she took advantage of being on a campus. So she had a performance team group that included the head of the pharmacy school, a, day, a system information specialist from the business school, experts in kinesiology and performance and recovery. So um, these were discussions going on in the 70s mid, and the 80s. Mid 80s, okay. We had won a bunch of NCAA titles, but in some sports that you can guess, swimming, track, distance running, we begin to see vestiges of this. They took it on and said, this is happening. And believe it or not, some of the media criticized Texas for even saying that. It, but Lopiano and her lieutenants, who there was a woman here in sports medicine named Tina Bonsi, who was brilliant ahead of her time. Tina and staff took this on and taught our coaches about when you're talking about body fat indexing, don't use the F word. We're going to talk about it differently. You're going to not weigh anymore. We're going to talk about lean muscle mass. What do we need to do in strength training? What do we need to do in nutrition? They took all of that on. Today, now you go down to our B1, B2 area at Texas and you see this accordion of services. Over here is mental behavioral health, which could range from those kind of situations to just stress, dealing with stress. Um, in our testing protocols, do you need accommodations? Are you on meds? Is it ADHD? Is it something else? All of those now are part of a progression of just helping a student athlete get through this experience. And where does social media come in on that front? Well, think about social media. It, it is today, it is yesterday's sports info. Um, instead of filling out the form, tell me about yourself, you know, what you like to do, what's your favorite color, what do you, music do you listen to? They just express that now. But what we do now, and I love this about social media and NIL, is that we now get a free opportunity to tell them how important personal branding is. And they accept those lessons now. Because NIL is great. You get to earn money, and you get to enter into a contract with a person or an entity and you get paid for your services. But guess what? Now too, we're gonna to warn you about, talk about reputation. If you have a DUI, if you don't show up at a class, flunk a test and are ineligible, you're not in the field all of a sudden, what do you think said company is gonna to react to? If you have a domestic dispute and you hit physically your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is, and there's, there's a public facing of that, guess what? Unlike the, what I would call the second, third, eighth chances that our system, our collegiate athletic system does, we don't kick you out if you flunk a test or flunk a drug test. We educate you, we give you counseling. In the business world, it's a little different. We tell them they probably will give you the lesson that name your superstar who made a mistake or admitted to cheating they will might just say that contract is no more because your reputation is now impacting our reputation as a company. We're gonna move on to somebody who will not 
engage in that kind of behavior because we know there are a lot of you out there. So I love NIL, social media, because it's measured and we can react to it. And it's a real life lesson. It is the closest thing to real life employment. Look, if you and I do make a mistake, there's ramifications for it. Sure. Um, that's okay for them to learn that now as freshmen, sophomores. Used, they used to have to wait to learn it maybe as seniors on an internship. I love that real life application. As we celebrate 50 years of Title IX, we know there is far greater opportunity. We also know there's quite a way to go. And when we reflect on some of the recent events that have gone viral, particularly the workout facility during women's basketball Final Four a couple of years ago, some recent reports that there are schools that are padding particular teams to be compliant. It makes you wonder, do you feel, especially to your point about proportionality and more and more women attending college, is true equality attainable? I think that um, equity is absolutely attainable. Um, the real equity that matters is in how individuals experience what they came to the institution for, the education and the sports opportunity. So we pay a lot of attention to services. What really happened at that tournament several years ago in the NCAA tournament in a COVID bubble, it was even more magnified, and it was unfortunate. We all know those people at the NCAA national office are not Darth Vader, and were not purposely doing something that looked inequitable or was inequitable. It was a convergence of very unusual circumstances, and they rectified many of them. And they'll even keep a closer eye in the future. It's so much easier on campuses. For us, we sit there and go, what does men's swimming and women's swimming need? Probably the same things. Golf, golf, tennis, tennis, etc. cetera. Um, it's easier on a campus because it's where we live. We live in the belly of the beast, if you will. But I think that, uh, again, as enrollment numbers change, as uh, sports that are new and interesting, like triathlon and you know, lacrosse is a big sport in this state, but it's not in the public school offerings yet. It's mainly at private schools. So if, like softball, we never had softball under Lopiano. She was a softball player, but until our university interscholastic league offered it as a state sport, it, it didn't make sense for her to offer softball here because she said, we need to recruit our state. They put it in in 93. Years later, we get Krista Williams and Kat Osterman, and we're off to the races. So it's going to continue to be that way. Um, what makes sense for the institution, it's based on interest, it's based on participation, it's based on what's offered in your state. Athletic leaders have tough jobs. We're going to have to be even more creative, clever, aggressive, and savvy financially in the future. And that's not just us, it's everybody. As somebody who served as a sports information director, as head of communications for a conference, as a senior women's administrator, a women's athletics director, what would you consider among your greatest prides and joys during your time in athletics? Oh, gosh. Um... 
And what's left to do? Is, do you have a bucket list? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it, it's real simple for me. I, I, my parents were my heroes, and they still are. My mom's 88, and she still walks two miles a day. She's amazing. My dad was a college football player. I lost him in, in the fall of 19, but he was the one who exposed me to sports. I never dreamed it'd be a career, but I loved his stories from competing in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, and I loved seeing how it changed the arc of his life. He was one of 10 children. No one else went to college. He was able to marry up, as I always told him, with my mom. Outkicked his coverage? Out, he outkicked <laughs> his coverage for sure, raised a family, and lived a long time and relished. He loved to watch Longhorn football, but he also loved hearing about our women's teams when I went home. He would always follow them and ask. So you always want to do something that you felt you learned at your parents' knee to make them proud. Um, I've been blessed to work at many great schools, Kent, Iowa State, the Big East, Texas twice. But if in any of that, I had done anything to besmirch my family's name and not make my parents proud, that would have been the inverse of what you just asked me. I'd rather say what I feel proud about is that I, that I think they can look at me and know that I worked really hard, um, got a good education as they told me to get, and have been able to contribute and pay it forward um, for all of these young men and women that we're serving today. That's kind of what I learned in our house, learn to pay it forward. Chris Plonsky, thank you so much for your time. And thank you all for watching College Sports Conversations celebrating 50 years of Title IX. Be sure to watch all of these episodes on the NCAA's digital and social channels, and we look forward to seeing you again soon.